will coin a phrase, to be metamorphosized, to be changed. Not to be schematized by this age, but to have a metamorphosis, a change, such a change that people might say about you, either in your family or those who know you or knew you, those in an extended sense or those who would know you intimately, something, something's happened to him. Something's happened to her. They've changed. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part three of A Living Sacrifice, the closing message of Pastor Lance Quinn's series from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Coming as it does near the end of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Roman church, these two verses place a crown on what has come before in the first 11 chapters of this marvelous New Testament book. Those first 11 chapters provide Paul's magnificent overview of how God has offered a ransom to sinful mankind from their condemnation in the form of his son's sacrifice as a necessary redemption from sin and eternal death. What Paul told the Corinthian believers in his letter to them, quote, you're a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come, end quote. And that's what this redemption brings. Here's part three of A Living Sacrifice. Philippians 2.17, this is Paul talking about himself, but it could be as well our talking about any ministry that we have. Philippians 2.17, but even if I, Paul, am being poured out as a drink offering, there's another reference to that Old Testament sacrificial system, a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of what? Your faith, Philippians, my ministry to you. I rejoice and share my joy with you all. I'm giving my very life as a poured out drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith and I do it with joy. Is that the way you look at your ministry? Whatever ministry that is or however much the ministries you have in your life. I mean that's that's a tremendous challenge. And we looked at chapter 4 of Philippians. Remember verse 18? Our financial giving. You say, now you're getting so practically relevant, I don't want to hear it. Because where your money is, there will your heart, your treasure be also. He says, I received your gift, Philippians, and oh, by the way, it was such a sweet aroma to the Lord. Thank you for that gift. It's going to help so many people in need. So my giving... My singing, my ministry, my service, all of those things for the sake of a church like this, a local church, offering up collectively spiritual sacrifices like a spiritual house that's being built one brick and mortar at the time so that God is finding this church, our ministry, acceptable with sweet aroma in His nostrils. That's what's going on here in Romans 12.1. And I am fast running out of time. So look at verse 2 with me. Look at verse 2. Romans 12.2. Here's what we might call the ethical practicality. He even goes further and says, let me tell you exactly how you're to make this kind of presentation. And he gives first a negative and then a positive. Here's the negative. 
And do not be conformed to this world. That word conformed is where we derive our English word schema. Schema. And the word world there is not the normal word, cosmos, for the, the world's ethical evil system. But it's the idea of I own life. Or as your alternate translation has it, age. The age in which we live. Don't be conformed to the age in which we live. That is the world. The evil of this world. Do not be, and we might borrow or coin a phrase, do not be schematized by the world. Don't let them, as one older translation says, do not let the world fit you, form fit you into its mold. That's what he's talking about. How? Here's the what. Your presentation. You're a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice to God. It's only reasonable. It's only rational. We're not doing it by way of externals. We're doing it internally. It's between us and the Lord. And we do so. How? We certainly cannot, must not, will not, do not experience a God-honoring presentation that's pleasing to His nostrils if we are at the very same time working toward or being allowed to conform ourselves to this world. It's not going to happen. You cannot have feet in both worlds. You can't do it. It's not of God. It's not of faith. It's not what the Lord wants you to do. It's not His will. It's not His purpose. That's why He says, by way of this warning, this injunction, do not be schematized, conformed to this ionai, this age, this world, this evil system, this life of sinfulness, the mores of the world, the means of the world. I was reading in Spurgeon's morning and evening, and if you're doing that this year, when you come to October 14th, he's speaking about this very thing of do not be conformed to this world. Romans 12.2, and this is what he says. This is convicting for us all. If a Christian can by possibility be saved while he conforms to this world, at any rate, it must be so as by fire. Such a bare salvation is almost as much to be dreaded as desired. Reader, would you wish to leave this world in the darkness of a desponding deathbed and enter heaven as a shipwrecked mariner climbs the rocks of his native country? Then be worldly. Be mixed with the Mammonites, those pursuing mammon, and refuse to go without the camp bearing Christ's reproach. But would you have a heaven below as well as a heaven above? Would you comprehend with all saints what are the heights and depths and know the love of Christ which passes knowledge? Would you receive an abundant entrance into the joy of your Lord? Then come ye out from among them, and be ye separate, and touch not the unclean thing. Would you attain the full assurance of faith? You cannot gain it while you commune with sinners. Would you flame with vehement love? Your love will be damped by the drenchings of godless society. You cannot become a great Christian 
You may be a babe in grace, but you never can be a perfect man in Christ Jesus while you yield yourself to the worldly maxims and modes of business of men of the world. It is ill for an heir of heaven to be a great friend with the heirs of hell. It has a bad look when a courtier is too intimate with his king's enemies. Even small inconsistencies are dangerous. Little thorns make great blisters, little moths destroy fine garments, and little frivolities and little rogueries will rob religion of a thousand joys. Oh, professor, too little separated from sinners, you know not what you lose by your conformity to the world. It cuts the tendons of your strength and makes you creep where you ought to run. Then for your own comfort's sake and for the sake of your growth in grace, if you be a Christian, be a Christian and be a marked and distinct one. Now, I don't know about you, but that's convicting. That's challenging. And here's how you do it. Here's the how of the what. The what's the presentation. The how, don't be conformed. Don't be schematized to this age. It'll suck you right into its mold. And then maybe by either people looking at your life, examining your life, or maybe even by your own self-examination, you're even wondering, am I truly a Christian? I'm so worldly. I don't know that I think much about Christ these days. I think about the world, the allurements, the temptations. And then here's a positive command he gives in Romans 12 too. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Oh, I wish this was an eight-part series. Is there nothing more important than the Christian's use of his mind? To be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It happens first by what we might call regenerating mercy or regenerating grace, right? By the Holy Spirit opening our eyes with initial renewal. And then also by continual renewal. The renewal of your mind. And the greatest means of grace. So that you and I would not be conformed to the world, but would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, is to read the book about Christ. Is to be, and again, we'll coin a phrase, to be metamorphosized. To be changed. Not to be schematized by this age, but to have a metamorphosis, a change, such a change that people might say about you, either in your family or those who know you or knew you, those in an extended sense or those who would know you intimately, something, something's happened to him. Something's happened to her. They've changed. They say now that they're a Christian and they say they don't do those things anymore. They say they don't want to be conformed by the things that we used to do. We thought we were having fun. They say they're not having fun anymore. What's going on? They've changed. It's not so fun anymore. And now they're bearing that reproach of Christ. Now they're seeing all the riches of Egypt as nothing but a fleeting pleasure. And they're actually saying, if I have to bear the reproach of Christ, I will do that. I'm, I'm a Christian now, and I, I no longer want to be schematized by this evil age. I want to be 
metamorphosized. I want to be changed. I want to be renewed. And I'm renewed by the very Word of God. He doesn't say that explicitly here, but that certainly is what he implies. The renewing of my mind. My thinking. I'm no longer schematized by the thinking of this evil age. How they think. What they think. In what ways they manifest their life, their character, their habits. But I'm now changed. By the way, this word metamorphosis here, that's used in Matthew and Mark when it refers to the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was transfigured before the, He was changed. Whiter than any tailor could make, any bleach could make it white. That's the kind of change I want Christ to make in my life that I'm completely changed and I can't do that on my own. As one writer said it this way, mercy instead of wrath, sacrificing their bodies instead of refusing to glorify God, offering the body to God instead of dishonoring the body through sin, reasonable worship instead of worshiping idols, a renewed mind instead of a reprobate mind, approving the will of God instead of rejecting the ordinance of God. This is so important, the Christian's use of his mind. Doug Moo helpfully says, the Christian can reduce the power of the secular in his mind. He can do so not necessarily by cutting himself off from the secular world, although it is understandable why many Christians say that television, for example, presents so powerful and dangerous an influence that it might be best to avoid it altogether. Rather, what is important is that he be careful to expose himself to Christian resources that are able to mold his mind. He should avail himself of scriptural teaching in a variety of forms. God's Word possesses the power to change one's thinking, to develop a distinctly Christian mindset in a person. But that cannot happen unless he places himself in an environment in which the Word is prominent. Daily study of Scripture, participation in Bible studies, regular church attendance, reading of Christian literature, even listening to Christian music, all are part of that environment. Then, armed with a biblical worldview, the Christian can evaluate the other influences about him. Paul told the believers in Colossae to let the Word of God dwell richly as you teach and counsel one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. That Word will be able to dwell in believers richly only if they come in contact with it constantly. Oh, it's so true. Isn't that why James says you look at the mirror of the Word and you see what kind of person you are and as soon as you turn away from the mirror, what? You forget what kind of person you are. You ever had that experience that you read Bible verses off the page and you say, yes, amen, I get it, I love that, it's true, I need to do that, and as soon as your eyes lift up off the page, you're saying, now what, what verse was that? I forgot. I, I need to. Or these verses are so familiar to us that we see them as somewhat ho hum. Matter of fact, take them for granted. So if, if it's familiarity or forgetfulness, we need the word. And we need it to transform our mind. We need that constant, continual, inward renewal of the Holy Spirit who takes His inspired Word and the Lordship of Christ as my Master through the very power of God the Father who's waiting for me to make this presentation of my body, my life, the totality of who I am as a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice and you say, yes, that's what I want to do. And what will be the end result? 
Look at the last part of verse 2 as we close. So that you may prove what the will of God is, that will which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now stay with me on this. This is grand. This is glorious. Verse 1 ties into verse 2. And verse 2 flows back into verse 1. Because if I'm to live a living and a holy and an acceptable sacrifice, that means I'm conforming myself not to the world, but to the will of God. And what is the will of God? It's that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And what is that perfect will of God? That I may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, so that I may have the kind of presentation toward God that He finds living and holy and acceptable. You see? Verse 1 tells me that I'm to pursue God's will. And verse 2 says that will is good and acceptable and perfect. And I say, well, what is that will? Some subjective thing? Like, well, what am I doing and what choices am I making? No. Here's the objective will of God. That in three ways, this good will, this acceptable will, and this perfect will, here it is. You ready? It is that you live a living, holy, and acceptable presentation before God that is well-pleasing in His sight. That's His will. That's His will for you. No need to wonder. No need to ask. It's right here. And I love this as we close. And I've said that, I think, maybe three times. But here's what it is. That you may, what does the text say? That you may prove what the will of God is. You say, well, see, that's it. I have to prove something to God. No. God is actually proving something to you. And here's what He's proving. That word prove couple of translation options there. One is approve, and one is test. And it's the Greek word dokimos. In this, in this case, dokimodzein. Here's what it is. It's an artisan term, and it's referring to a fiery furnace, so that when precious metals by that artisan are placed in the fiery furnace that's incredibly hot, so hot that none of us could touch it with the naked hand, that precious set of metals goes into the fiery furnace, and when it does, what is melted away? The dross. What remains? Precious metals, gold, silver, precious stones. That's your Christian life. And God is on a relentless quest to take you and to take me through the fiery furnace of testing, of proving, of approving this good and acceptable and perfect will that you and I live this holy, living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice. And when he, when he sets us in that fire of the furnace, the testing, the trials, the tribulations of life, I am no longer conforming myself to this age and its evil principles, and I'm renewing my mind in such a way that I'm proving that God's will is operative in my life. I mean, this, this is phenomenal. This is God working His will in us so that we are approved in the giving of our spiritual sacrifices unto Him. This is God expecting something and that He also is generating alongside our desire so that His will is made known and carried out by His power through our life so that we are acceptable spiritual sacrifices unto Him. Don't you love it when someone tells you to do something and then they give you the grace to carry it out? You say, well, I, I don't know. I've got 
so many hard trials. I got so many hard tests. There are so many difficult things in my Christian life. That's the trial. You're in the furnace, and God is burning away the dross. And when you come out, you are dakimas. You are tested and found approved that you are pursuing the good and acceptable and perfect will of God and you are by God's design, will, and grace a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice to Him which is well-pleasing and isn't it that way because it's only reasonable. Why don't you bow your heads with me? Our Heavenly Father, it shouldn't be any other way. This is so reasonable, so rational, so obvious that this is what you want. This, this is your will and it's good and it's acceptable and it's perfect. It's conforming me progressively to your very Son's image. Oh Father, I pray there would be no one here who would say you were talking about me today because I've recognize, maybe even for the first time this morning, that I'm a sham professor. I would have said coming in this morning that I love Christ, but not in the way that you describe, not with the habits that you spoke about. I've habitually been conforming my whole life to the world, to this evil age, and I'm convicted and I'm challenged and I need to talk with someone. Well, I pray that if that is the case with you. You would come to my right, to your left, underneath that exit sign and through those double doors where some men and women would like to talk with you about your relationship to Christ and whether or not you truly know Him. And that through repentance and faith, trusting in Him and Him alone, you would be able to say, I, I, I now rejoice and know where my eternal destiny lies. And for those of you who are believers, I pray that if you've been flirting with the world, you would forsake the world and that you would concentrate so vigorously on being transformed through the renewing of your mind so that you would prove what God's plan and will is for you. That plan is good and it's acceptable and it's perfect. So that you, when you come to worship and when you give and when you read your Bibles and when you witness to others and when you talk to the Lord, your presentation of that sacrifice to Him is living and holy and acceptable and He's well pleased and His nostrils have the fragrant aroma of your life attached to those sacrifices. Oh Lord, thank You for convicting and challenging us and for the patience of these who have heard this message, and for all of us, myself most included, to live our lives in such a way that you would say to us, well done, good and faithful slave. Enter in to the joy of your Lord. We pray all these things for the sake of Christ. Amen. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Pastor Lance has called verses 1 and 2 of Romans chapter 12 a strong exhortation to action, a command from the Apostle Paul. These verses come to us following a picture in chapters 1 through 11 of what God has done. 
He's given us forgiveness, justified you, declared you not guilty. He's also given us the gift of repentance, whereas before we had no clue how to repent. Following repentance, we become part of his family, and we are then called to serve him now and for all eternity. Are we listening to that call? There may be a lot to give up, but much, much more to receive. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Lance Quinn, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you're interested in finding out how God's wisdom and grace can change your destiny now and forever, come to our website, timelesstruthtoday.org, timelesstruthtoday.org. On the homepage, select Broadcast, and there you'll find a treasury of Pastor Lance's gospel-centered radio messages. If you're close by and don't have a local church that you call home, come worship with us at 1030 every Sunday morning. We're located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks, California. Tomorrow, we start a new series with part one of Loving Others in Light of God's Love. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.